This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. And my answer is, well, we got to get growers ready. We need them to do their homework. We need them to, because this is a long-term investment. There's a lot of risks for new crops. And so we want educated growers. And if that means we have a thousand people come in the door and only two, you know, 200 or 20 decide it's right for them, good. Welcome to Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your co-host Jerry Clark with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Extension in Chippewa County, serving as an agricultural educator. My co-host today is Ashley Olson. Yeah, hi Jerry. I am Ashley Olson. I also am an agriculture educator with Division of Extension. I am located down a little further in western Wisconsin in Vernon County. Um, county seat of Viroqua. Yeah, today we'll be talking about hazelnuts as our alternative crop. And, and Ashley, have you ever um, experienced hazelnuts? Well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I did uh, eat some Nutella when I was growing up and there are <laughs> hazelnuts in there to get my extra protein in when I didn't want to have just peanut butter because the uh, Nutella has a lot more flavor with the chocolate as I was learning something about hazelnuts. But uh, Jerry, I, I think you have some uh, hazelnut candy, don't you? Yeah, I was at a, just this last weekend, I was at a, um, a country store owned and operated by a, a Mennonite family and came across some hazelnut spread M&Ms. So there were some M&Ms in, uh, in bulk. And so I bought as many as I could, a couple boxes and, uh, I don't know how many bags are in a box, but uh, that's been uh, what I've been uh, snacking on here during this uh, stay-at-home type of thing. So I've been uh, stumbled across these hazelnut spread M&Ms, and they're pretty good. I was starting to look, and there are uh, lots of different um, aspects that go, grow, go into growing hazelnuts, and I'm excited to learn more about that today. Great. And I think uh, as we move forward with our program today, I'll introduce who our guests are. Uh, joining us today on the cutting edge is Jason Fishbach, agricultural agent up in Ashland and Bayfield counties, and Lois Brown with University of Minnesota. So welcome, Jason and Lois, to the cutting edge. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Ashley. Hi, Lois. Hi. All right, so uh, Jason and Lois, we'll let you guys kind of introduce yourselves, how you got involved in hazelnuts and you know, in general, uh, what's this plant all about? And, you know, uh, a little history behind how you got started. I got started in hazelnuts when I was in graduate school in 2003, four, I guess it was. And uh, I, I was an agroecologist by training, both undergrad and graduate school. And one of the things that we learn in the agroecology programs is how to complain about uh, modern agriculture. And <laughs> That seemed like a dead end, so I thought, well, maybe there's something we can do about it. If there's a lack of biodiversity on the landscape, if there are other opportunities for farmers, let's develop them. Let's, let's come up with some new options. And at the time, I was working on Illinois bundleflower, uh, which is a perennial legume. Not sure it's gone anywhere since I worked on it, uh, but hazelnuts came along, and I thought, wow, this is a interesting, cool crop. We don't really have a nut crop in Wisconsin or Minnesota, and maybe there's opportunity there. Um, and then I went off, did other things after graduate school, but then got a job with extension up in Ashland, Bayfield County. It turns out in Bayfield County, hazelnuts are wild throughout the county. And I thought, well, let's, let's see if we can make hazelnuts a crop up in our, our country. So that was 2007 when I started with extension and it's been an exciting project ever since. So Lois, a little background on, on yourself and, and how you got, uh, what your work, um, career and work has been in with hazelnuts. Well, I'm not sure how far back I should go, but um, <laughs> the first thing I did when I graduated from college was I got an internship uh, with the Land Institute, and that was 1985. Um, if you don't know the Land Institute, it is developing perennial, perennial polycultures to 
solve those agricultural issues that Jason alluded to. And we were working with prairie plants, prairie perennials, mostly natives at that point. But then I left the Land Institute and <laughs> ironically, one of the things I complained about at the Land Institute was they were saying that it was going to be probably a 50 year project. And as a 22 year old, I felt like 20, uh, 50 years was way too long. Um, but anyway, I went on and did other things that seemed a lot more immediate of benefit, things like working on farms and uh, the Peace Corps, things like that. And eventually I ended up doing a master's degree in Georgia, but I um, met somebody from Minnesota, um, had a romance with somebody in Minnesota and came up to visit <laughs> him. And we were um, out biking in Lanesboro on the Root River Trail which is rather flat and eventually gets rather boring because it's so flat. And he said, well, I know somebody near here who I think you'd be interested in. And let's get off the trail into the hills and uh, visit this guy. Well, it turns out that it was Phil Rudder of Badgerset Research Farm, um, which is one of the leaders on, or I should say the pioneers on the hazelnut idea of making them be this new sustainable crop. Oh, I would think it was five years later, I was looking for a job at the University of Minnesota and um, one of my friends, a professor at the U of M had an internship. He had a small grant to work with hazelnuts and offered it to me as, um, as a graduate assistantship. And so I jumped at the opportunity. What made both of you decide to really um, go into and start working with hazelnuts? Tell us a little background information about hazelnuts, the industry. What are they? I would say we were both kind of pushed into hazelnuts or pulled into hazelnuts by a couple of, of um, kind of visionaries, I guess, in my mind. So Mark Shepard is a fellow down by Viola. Uh, not too far from you, Ashley, I suspect. Yep, right. I'm about a half hour from Viola and Mark Shepard's farm. Yeah, so he's a real inspirational speaker and has set out a vision for what woody agriculture or a more diversified agricultural system might look like. And in some ways, he's kind of left it up to folks like us to figure out the details. But anyway, that got me excited. And then there's a professor at um, uh, University of Minnesota, Don Weiss, who at the time was uh, weed scientist still is but does a lot of work in alternative crops and so he he is kind of he's the driver now behind the forever green initiative in minnesota that's working to develop um, all kinds of different perennial grains or or also uh, winter annuals to try to uh, diversify and create continuous living cover so he's kind of these two visionaries i think got us both excited in hazelnuts and then in 2007 we finally started to formalize things and we pulled together a, a steering committee and a, um, held a, a strategic planning session that laid out and launched the Upper Midwest Hazelnut Development Initiative. And that was launched in 2007, the UMHDI. And that's been, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, my life and Lois's life since then. Uh, we started out with a staff of zero and a budget of zero, and we've come a long way, as I'm sure we can talk more about today. So the the plant itself, or, the, you know, thinking of the marketing, or the market, so we're we're talking obviously about a nut. Is this kind of a, is this more of a tree, a shrub, or, you know, can anybody grow this? And I know, Jason, you referred to soils up in that Ashland Bayfield area. Do they grow kind of anywhere, or is this got kind of a specific climate or soil that it's looking for? Yeah, so there's three main species, if you will, from a crop standpoint. So there's Turkish hazelnut, which definitely is a tree, doesn't grow here. And then there is European hazelnut, which uh, wants to be a multi-stem shrub on its own, but it's typically pruned into a tree form, one or two stems. Then there's American hazelnut, which is what grows wild in the upper Midwest. And that definitely is a shrub. It spreads, it suckers, particularly in the wild. Uh, and then what we're mainly interested in, what we're growing in the upper Midwest right now are hybrids between the American hazelnut and the European hazelnut. And we see quite a variation in form and growth habit. And so the jury's still out in some ways in terms of how these are gonna be grown. 
Uh, I think for the most part, we're thinking it's going to be a hedgerow of shrubs, not unlike um, high bush blueberry production, where you've got shrubs that are six to 10 feet tall uh, and it's continuous along that row. Uh, but there's also some of these uh, hybrids that we're developing that probably could be grown as a tree form. You have to do some pruning, but then, um, you know, the harvesting systems and stuff will likely be different or could be depending on the system. So we're still early enough in the project um, that it's not exactly clear how are the production systems will develop. It's also, I think, going to be driven a bit by the soils and climate. You know, the upper Midwest is really variable. Uh, mm -hmm. So up here in the north, the plants don't get as tall. So we might go with the hedgerow system. But you go down south of, of say, Madison in those gorgeous soils and longer season, and the plants are far more vigorous. So that might be a place where they're grown more as a tree. And when you're talking the difference, we're talking some shrubs versus trees and different hybrids that have come about. Well, you said that you're working with the experimenting between the American hazelnut or a, a mixture between American hazelnut and, and the European hazelnut. How long does it take from experimenting with these new hybrids or varieties from planting them until you could start to see a, a crop of hazelnuts? Um, the research cycle or the breeding cycle in Oregon is about 17 years. And from wow. seeds to releasing a variety. So you do the, the controlled crosses in year one you harvest the seeds in the fall of that year, you plant the seeds the following year, and they will start producing the precocious ones in about three, four years. Um, most of them will be in production by five years. If they're not, we don't want them. Um, and then we like to collect at least three years of data from them before we decide that they're any good, preferably more. So that takes us to about year eight. Year nine, we do something called mound layering, which is a method of propagation to get clonal plant material. Clonal plants are genetically uniform. Um, and basically it's similar to grafting in apples, except you can't graft hazelnuts. Well, you can, but it's not easy. Um, and so we, do mound layering instead, which produces a whole bunch of genetically identical plants. We plant those out in replicated trials because it's only in replicated trials that we can be sure that what we've got is excellent because it's got excellent genetics as opposed to just happened to grow where the soil was optimal. Um, and then once they're in their replicated trials, basically we repeat the whole sequence of waiting for them to mature, then evaluating them for at least three years, if not more. So that takes us up to about 17 years before we can release them. So the cool part of this project is that we didn't start out at year one. Uh, the growers themselves, what we call, early, we call early adopter growers. And there's a lot of them. When we did some survey work, when we started the project, we found almost 150 growers of hazelnuts, all small, you know, less than an acre typically, but some were pretty big, five, 10 acres. And they, they took it upon themselves uh, to start growing hazelnuts. So they bought a bunch of seedling material. So seed or, or plants that they got from a couple of private breeders, Mark Shepard and, um, uh, Phil Rudder, who Lois mentioned, uh, they made the crosses, they saved the seed, and they sent the plants out to the growers. And this was happening in the, you know, in the 90s and into the early 2000s. And then, um, so they did all the, they did all the hard work. And then we came along, um, mainly uh, Lois in the early years, and started working with the growers to find their single best plants. Uh, sometimes one, two, three, maybe four from a planting. And then we mound layer those, put them into replicated trials 2008, 2009, evaluated them long enough that we were able to make some selections. So what we call our first gen selections, there's 10 of them, and they're currently in propagation to get out to growers for commercial production. Uh, it depends on, you know, how risk, your level of risk tolerance. So some might say, let's go, let's take these and plant thousands of acres. 
And others might say, whoa, 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 how about we do, you know, maybe some five acre plantings here and there. Uh, because we've, we've shown that these are uh, high performing across a range of environments, but these were, you know, maybe nine, 10 plants per each of five locations. And so they have not been tested in, in any big way yet. So there's definitely a lot of risk involved with this first gen material, but we're at least confident enough to get them propagated and out to uh, networks of growers or smaller scale kind of uh, first adopters, if you will, of the next stage. But uh, we can go into more of that detail. But anyway, that's that gives us kind of an overview of the breeding program. Now, uh, Lois is taking the lead on a, on the, the breeding pipeline, so to speak, right? So again, the 17 years to do this stuff for one breeding cycle. But if you don't start, then nothing ever happens, right? So my favorite adage is what's the best plant? What's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago, what's the <laughs> time? Today, right? So the same thing applies here. So once you get your pipeline set up though, and once you start, you know, then every year there's something new and exciting coming out. And that, that's our hope. That's what we're trying to do is institutionalize this project so that there is a support network and a breeding program that can sustain the industry for years and years to come. What is the market right now, or what, what what's it used for? I th you know we've seen it in candies, we've seen it you know in spreads and that kind of thing. What what's the market for it? And uh, you know if a person's ready to to get in, is the market accepting them, or is it flooded? You know we we blasted things with industrial hemp in two years, and that that niche crop is is struggling to uh, you know clear the market. So just curious, what's the market right now? And you know if a person's ready to to get into it is, will the crop obviously five years from now before they maybe have something ready to sell, but um, what's the market look like? So we've been doing a lot of thinking about this because the last thing we want to have happen is the, this, the typical boom and bust cycle of new crops, right? We have some advantages in hazelnuts because everything moves really slowly. You're not going to plant 10,000 acres this year and have 10,000 acres worth of production next year, right? All of this is going to take time. So that's, that's going to help us with that. Um, but we have to think about sort of the tiers of markets and we can look at some different crops uh, as, as models. And the first tier, the first model would be the Wisconsin apple industry where there's about 3000 acres or so. And most of those apples are sold direct to consumers or through relatively small wholesale accounts with a lot of uh, agritainment thrown in, uh, a lot of value added processing some brand development around those value-added products. And it does a good, a good business across Wisconsin. It's 3,000 acres, it's meaningful, right? And that's a great first model, I think, for uh, hazelnuts, where the growers can uh, vertically integrate on their farm, have a farm store. Uh, hazelnuts might be part of a larger operation. And their main goal is to capture that retail margin by selling direct to the consumer. And how, how big is that market? You know, we don't really know. Uh, with all of whenever you're you know selling direct to customers you've got to get out there and sell your product before you know what the market is but we know there's a lot of acceptance in it and when eat hazelnuts particularly fresh roasted hazelnuts love them it's hard to find anyone who doesn't like hazelnuts right then if you look at something like um, Wisconsin cranberries we're in the 20 25,000 acre market where you've got um, You've got companies that are aggregating. You've got an industry that's doing the processing like Ocean Spray, and they're selling uh, branded products across the country. So you've got that cranberry industry, and we're starting to see maybe some of the beginnings of that kind of infrastructure develop in the Midwest. There's the American Hazelnut Company, which is a grower-owned hazelnut processing and marketing company, and we're trying to support that through our processing accelerator by uh, bringing in improved and bigger equipment to speed up the process for them. So we'll see where that goes. You know, we're a long way to ever getting close to, to cranberry scale, but that's kind of the next model. And then the big one, right? This is the commodity market and all signs point to uh, tailwinds for hazelnuts across the country, right? Or across the world right now. There, there have been analysts that have projected that by 2028, we'll need double the supply of hazelnuts. So that would be the equivalent of adding about a million new acres of hazelnuts. And to give you some perspective of scale in the U.S. right now, almonds in California, there's about 1.3 million acres. Oregon, which is, is exploding in terms of production right now, they're just adding thousands and thousands of acres. They're only at 80,000 acres. And so in the marketplace, there's this concept of peanut fatigue or almond fatigue. Consumers are looking for something else. 
most American consumers have never really eaten hazelnuts. If you go to the grocery store, they've been hard to find. And that's changing, like you guys mentioned with the M&Ms, it's starting to show up everywhere because consumers are responding positively. So in, in our backyard, we have companies like General Mills. We have companies like Fisher Nuts. We have companies like Mars that currently use a lot of hazelnuts and have expressed an interest in sourcing locally instead of having to rely on the fickle Turkish production, which is where most hazelnuts are grown right now. Um, but in order to engage with a company like that, you know, you, we have to have huge volumes, truckloads per day, not a truckload per year of where we're kind of at right now. Um, so the market to me is, 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 it's a great time to get into hazelnuts. Everything moves slowly. Who knows what the future holds, but um, because of these sort of three different tiers. And if we think about this strategically and provide these opportunities for growers before they plant, I think we're going to have a more sustainable industry that avoids the big boom and bust. And so Jason, um, we're talking about different companies and maybe willing to want to purchase hazelnuts and we're very small and still learning and growing in our area. We're not like you set up a cranberry production yet, things like that. So if we are say in the Midwest, we're growing hazelnuts, where would we see our hazelnuts mainly being used going into food production? I mean, will we be raw nuts that we would just buy at the store and, and buy by the pound and eat? Or would we see them going into, I see, co I had hazelnut coffee creamer before. Um, where would we see our hazelnuts going? What would they be going into? It's a good question. The short answer is everywhere, right? And so oil, culinary oil, uh, flour, because it's a, you know, it's, there's no gluten in it, it's high protein. Um, and then, like you said, it can be used as an ingredient in every project you can imagine. Uh, I just read an interesting article of, about one of the packers in Oregon, one of the processors, and they made the comment that, you know, listen, hazelnuts are relatively expensive in part because it's got a fairly low percent kernel. So we're at, you know, at best with the Oregon varieties, we might push 50, 55% kernel, which is still a lot less than say almonds, for example. And so you, the, the cost of, of hazelnuts is just inherently more expensive just because you're growing a lot of shell at the same time. And so they really position hazelnuts as an ingredient in some other product. That's why Nutella isn't selling you hazelnuts. Nutella is selling you palm oil, cocoa powder, and sugar, right? Hazelnuts is just the flavoring. So I suspect that we'll see, and this, it's, this is where most of the food companies are at. They're not selling you snack hazelnuts. They're using it as an ingredient in something else. So for example, uh, breakfast cereals is a place where we'll probably see hazelnuts once there's sufficient volume uh, and market acceptance. And they're gonna move a lot of hazelnuts that way, but it's just a small component of the actual ingredients in, in, uh, in a breakfast cereal. So from the, from the plant standpoint then, um... You know, uh, so I, I assume we're, we're uh, if, if a farmer wants to get into this, they would purchase plants, uh, actual seedlings, and, and get them started. They're not going to start from from the nut, or you know, it's not like a seed type of, or is that a possible or potential, or an option for that farmer, or should they, they just, yeah, explain that planting process? I guess. Yeah. Um, at this point, um, what? A variety will be a clonally propagated plant. Uh, so it will not be a seedling. A seedling by definition is something that is grown by, grown from a seed. So um, right now I've mentioned this mound layering technique, which I've been using to produce new plants for research plantings, but it is not very productive in terms of the number of new plants that can be developed from mound layering. So what we're trying to do instead is uh, develop techniques called um, micropropagation or tissue culture, which involves uh, growing hazelnuts out, well, taking little tiny cuttings of hazelnuts and growing them out on a Petri dish under sterile conditions. And once they're stabilized, once they're established on these Petri dishes, you can divide them, oh, thousands of times to get genetically identical plants. Um, however, 
micropropagation is proving to be, well, hazelnuts are recalcitrant in micropropagation. So they don't micropropagate nearly as easily as many other species of plants do. And we've got major research effort going into that. And in fact, what I was doing this morning, the reason why I couldn't join you right away was because I was collecting cuttings for a micropropagation project. And it's a good point to make is that right now the propagation is the bottleneck we face. We feel like we've got the markets. We feel like we've, you know, we've still a lot of questions on the agronomics, but we, we pretty much know how to grow these. We're learning how to harvest them with some mechanical equipment. Uh, we think the markets are there. It's just a matter of getting plant material to growers and these stupid things just do not want to be propagated. And, you know, that's why we've got, you know, boatloads of money into it now. We've got three different labs working on it. Because uh, we, we see this as, you know, large scale um, production and that can have a, a significant positive effect on the agronomic landscape in terms of water quality, carbon sequestration, biodiversity, habitat, all these things that we need in our agricultural systems right now, if only we could get the plants propagated. Um, but that said, so as a grower right now, you know, what would you grow? So we definitely are encouraging folks to wait for the clonal, the, the proven material. Uh, but in the meantime, it's also not a bad idea to plant some more of these seedlings. Uh, we see them, they'll have a role both providing a pollen cloud, because uh, we want to make sure these are all wind pollinated and they, they're not uh, self-pollinating, so they, they need somebody else. So we want a bunch of dads out there uh, shedding pollen in the fields and they can plant those now. Uh, and that, that's, that's a good idea. It's also, there's still opportunities for growers to participate in plant breeding. And so one thing we're doing is now is starting to save seed from these top plants. Um, half siblings, we don't necessarily know who the dads are on these, um, but if we've got growers that wanna participate in breeding, they can get access or will be able to, to these, this plant material and uh, grow it out. And you know most of the plants probably will be okay but we want them to find the top ones that work on their site, their property. One thing we're trying to do too is um, what we don't want to see is as the plant material comes available is it just gets planted scattered throughout the upper Midwest. Uh, it's, it's just not efficient enough because in order to do this, we need people to be sharing harvesting equipment. You know, these harvesting units are going to be 50, 60, $70,000. The hazelnut processing that we do in Ashland, we have almost $100,000 worth of equipment there now. And so if you've got small growers scattered hundreds of miles apart, it's just too inefficient. So what we're trying to do is build clusters of growers. And with some new grant funding we got from the USDA, we're launching seven initial clusters. And the idea is for them to be geographically clustered so that they can share on all this infrastructure and, and input costs and that kind of thing. And, and also they can build their planting decisions around germplasm trials. So we're trying to get ahead of them in each of these clusters by getting our, our uh, more trials out so we can be three, four years ahead of them in some cases. So would these be similar to like a grower network that you're trying to, to line up or is this just uh, beyond that where you're, you know, like you said, geographically looking at it versus someone who just wants to be part of a network? Uh, so we, we expect and the way we're kind of building this out is we're sort of casting a wide net and making people sort of show interest and step up to the table and, and be what we would consider core growers. The folks that understand the risks have done the homework and are just passionate and want to make this work. So they'll, they'll sort of lead the network. And then you'll have, you know, tiers of growers from there that are various levels of interest. Some just lurking, watching, seeing, they'll be later to enter the game probably. And then someone closer to the core might be, you know, Hey, we'll let you two go first or you five go first, and then we'll be the next ones to plant, you know? So, um, and then each network will kind of set their own agenda. Um, the idea is that it, we can do outreach education with them, but then they may choose to, um, as a network, just aggregate and sell in shell nuts, or they might want to take on as a group the actual processing themselves and maybe even come up with some branded products. So it's just up to them. Um, the main thing we're trying to do is when the plant material initially is limited, we just want to see it in clusters. So it's close to each other. Um, plus it's a way for growers to share risks and information and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Oh, that sounds I, like a good plan for those that are trying to get into it or 
you know, if they know of a grower nearby, kind of like hops, I think we've done it in yeah. Wisconsin now for a number of years where it seems like hop growers share equipment and, and figure out where the nearest processor is or harvester and that kind of thing. I wish it was, this was a model that all new crops used. I mean, imagine if hemp did this, right? Mm -hmm. There'd just mm -hmm. be so many advantages, but it's just hard um, in terms of, you know, trying to get growers to do that. But we have, so we're also a little bit unique in that if we wanted to, because this plant material will be patented and growers will essentially, uh, um, you know, be paying royalties, but we could even license them to grow hazelnuts and, and actually control who's growing and where. Um, that would be the, the easiest and most effective way to get these clusters of growers. And probably long-term would be the smartest way to do it, but we've decided to not do that. It just feels a little too heavy-handed. And so folks will be able to buy these hazelnuts, but we're just trying to organize grower clusters so that whoever buys them, they just happen to be living next to each other. But anyone who wants to buy this will be able to, to buy them. What are, what are you going for when you're breeding and, and crossbreeding the different varieties? We are, we've got a long list of traits that we're looking for and flavor is one of them. Um, we actually have a flavor scientist at uh, the university, actually Ohio State University. Um, my personal opinion is that with the exception of an individual nut that's clearly gone bad, I think that they all taste good, but the flavor scientists um, have figured out variation between um, different genetic lines. So uh, their objective is to develop an assay by which we can identify those with good flavor. Ultimately, they would like to develop a method by which we can identify those with good flavor even before they're old enough to produce any nuts, which wow. sounds pie in the sky to me, but apparently that um, technology already exists for tomatoes. <laughs> so um, the idea behind it is that if we plant a hazelnut and have to wait three, four years, five years before we get to find out what it tastes like, that's a lot of time and resources invested. Whereas if we can call the, the bad ones, or actually I think they're, they're focusing first on off flavors. If we can identify which ones have bad flavors and eliminate them right when they're still seedlings in the nursery, that saves us a lot of effort. Lois, I'll jump in a little bit here on the flavor side. So we did some sensory analysis to compare the aroma and flavor using trained taster panels, where we took some wild hazelnuts and we had the, the, the tasters compare them to some standard European varieties. And not all, but, but most of the American selections rated higher for both flavor, intensity, and aroma than the European varieties. And we've had growers tell this for years that American hazelnuts taste better. And in some ways that's not surprising because a lot of our wild type progenitors of, of crops tend to taste better, right? So the wheat lines, this is kind of a standard story. Um, so we're, we're not too far removed from these wild plants. You know, we're like one, maybe two generations out of the wild. So we, they, like Lois said, they all taste good. Uh, but we do, you know, we'll taste hundreds of these different varieties or plants as we do our analyses. And I'll tell you, there is a big range in flavor if you're sort of paying attention. Some are pretty bitter, some are really sweet and everything in between. And so, one thing I'd like to see is um, is develop some geographic provenance in terms of hazelnut production and almost follow like the Italian model where this part of the country produces this cheese and this part a different cheese and there's a lot of a lot of focus on flavor as an attribute and so hazelnut oil is almost identical to olive oil uh, in many many ways. And we would really love to see all of our, at least starting with our locavores, the folks that profess to eating local, is they'll tend to eat everything local except what? Coffee, chocolate, and olive oil. Well, here's an opportunity to quit importing olive oil and start eating hazelnut oil because you can use it the same way. Uh, but then we've got, depending on what nuts you use, you can make different flavors and qualities of hazelnut oil. 
So we could see some differentiation there, and that gives some access to a, a, you know, potentially a big market share of the, the culinary oil, which is olive oil, if we can get consumers to, to replace that. But it also provides some opportunity for differentiation and high value sales, selling high value stuff, getting back to you know, your sort of market tiers. You can sell a premium hazelnut oil because of superb flavors, because of the genetics in the hazelnuts. It just gives you some more advantages as a grower. So part of your processing uh, up there in Ashland, Bayfield, Jason, do you have a, a crushing f uh, facility or a press to, to look at the oil content or isn't that part of the your Yeah, process? so in, in Ashland, we can, we can take the nuts in husk and we'll remove the husk and then we can do cracking and then we can separate the kernel from the shell. Uh, the, the hazelnut processing accelerator, it's a private public partnership. And so our, one of our partners is the American Hazelnut Company and Gaze Mills, um, in, I believe they're Richland County, I think. And they, um, they actually do the oil pressing there and they'll do the bottling and all that stuff. So, so we just do some of the primary processing and then gotcha. they do the oil. So roughly how many, so when you're harvesting hazelnuts and, and sending them off, it, it goes by the pound, correct? And then it could go by the nut itself or sell with the shell. And we're talking about the replacing um, some olive oil with hazelnut oil. How, how many pounds of hazelnuts does it take to make? I don't even know what oil, how, how much oil comes say in a container that we would purchase olive oil for cooking. They're not very large. A lot of them you buy. Mm -hmm. How many hazelnuts would it take to make pounds of hazelnuts to make some oil? Well, let's see if we can do some math here. So hazelnuts are 60% oil by weight. Oh, so they're and, very high in oil. Okay. Oh yeah, very much so. One of the highest oil contents of, of nuts. Um, and most oil that the American Hazelnut Company sells seems to be the popular is 8.4, 8.5 fluid ounces. So I, at some point I did this math, figure out how many pounds so, it takes. But. On average, our hazelnuts are one third kernel um, to shell. So basically uh, two times as much shell weight as kernel weight. So multiply 0.33 by 0.6 and you come up with just about 0.2. So in other words, five pounds of in-shell nuts to one pound of oil. Does the shell have value then? How is that? Is that used in? Uh, we wish because hazelnut growers don't grow kernels, they grow shells. Right. <laughs> I mean, even Oregon, half of what they grow is shell, right? It's so, shell. Right. Uh, we've had companies look at it to make kitty litter. Uh, there's companies that are trying to use ground up hazelnut shells for organic weed control, where you actually use it basically as an abrasive and you spray it on the weeds to blast them apart. Huh. Um, there's been some use for like sandblasting, um, but we're looking for the golden ticket on the hazelnuts to give it some high value. Uh, you can burn it. Um, you know, it's really high in BTU content, especially when it's dried down. In Oregon, everywhere you go, it's hazelnut shells as mulch. So there's always that value because it takes forever to break down because it is sure. dense wood. Um, but yeah, so if you've got a sweet idea for how to sell <laughs> hazelnuts for lots of money, we would, hazelnut shells, we'd love to. The, the problem with using hazelnut shells for mulch, though, is that squirrels really love it. Yeah, they'll dig through there looking for any kernel scraps that that was, <laughs> well, right. that was that was one question I, I had uh, Jason you mentioned earlier you know the biodiversity getting it out on the landscape you know and that kind of thing uh, is is it a is there a pest management issue with it uh, is there any insects or wildlife other than squirrels obviously but um, anything else do deer browse it or do you need to yeah. fix it in with like orchards apple orchards? all of the above okay yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not a preferred browse for deer, because it's got these sticky trichomes on it, but we definitely see some buds being chewed off in the fall. And the grouse will eat the catkins, turkeys like the catkins. When those nuts are ripe, every critter in the country comes calling. Uh, you know, my property, I've got, oh, I don't know, half an acre of hazelnuts, and I won't see a blue jay all year. And then the day the hazelnuts are ripe, I've got 50 blue jays in there stealing the hazelnuts. Is but that your sign that it's time to go harvest them? Then? It's always the day I'm leaving for like a conference and there's no way I can pick for like three days. It always works that way. But as long as you keep tabs on them and know when they're ripe, 
and you got to be ready. And then you go pick, you know? So, and if, in, in Oregon where they've got, you know, 80,000 acres, yeah, they lose some hazelnuts to the critters and they'll basically say they lose the perimeter row, but with 80,000 acres, you know, you feed the wildlife and you feed yourselves. And so if you have two plants, people are always complaining that the squirrels steal all their hazelnuts because they do. If you've got 2000 plants, the squirrels can't eat that many hazelnuts if, as long as you're there starting to pick, right? So now we're definitely, so on the herbivory and nut theft, it's definitely always gonna be an issue to some degree. Right now we're kind of in the honeymoon period with disease and pest problems because we don't really have enough hazelnuts out on the landscape for these pest populations to build. But the two main ones we're worried about on the insect side would be big bud mite, which is a little microscopic mite that gets in the buds and, and damages them. And then uh, nut weevils. Uh, so anyone who's wild harvested hazelnuts, they'll know that a lot, a lot of times those nuts will have holes in them and with no kernel. So we've got a, a graduate student at University of Minnesota now working on both of these pests to start develop some degree day models and better understand. Our hope is to, to not have to spray for them, you know, but with so many breeding objectives, we probably won't have resistance to these insect pests necessarily. It might be more by chance than anything else. So there's gonna have to be some attention paid to pest management. We want to do IPM. We'd rather folks not have to just spray. So we'll see what the beneficial complex looks like and, and what other opportunities there are. And we got to figure out what the thresholds are. On the disease side, the one that we're all deathly afraid of is, is Eastern filbert blight. It's an endemic disease in, in our populations, but American hazelnut has co-evolved with it. So we see some resistance and tolerance to it, quantitative in particular. Um, but it's lethal to hazelnuts. When it moved into Oregon, it almost killed the industry. And they've had to rely on some fancy breeding to get some single gene resistance and even that's starting to break down. So um, that's why they're looking to us for our American hazelnut genetics to get better disease resistance built into their European hazelnuts. So we'll see. Um, our stuff has been tested, but again, when they're co-evolving, it's always sort of a race, right? Eastern filbert blight is a highly variable species and likely will adjust to the new varieties that we get out there and it'll be a push-pull for forever. Um, just like any crop, you're always going to have to deal with some disease pressure. So from a planting standpoint, then, um, you know, is there a certain density that, you know, say I did have a half an acre or an, let's use an acre, you know, about how many plants can you fit in there? And, you know, in a few years, what would your, ex, you know, average production expectation be provided things go somewhat, whatever normal is? That's something we're trying to figure out. Um, I've started several trials testing plant spacing, and um, right now I'm testing three feet apart within rows, comparing that three feet, six feet, nine feet, 12 feet, and at one side actually 15 feet, because these bushes can get upwards of 10 feet tall and equally wide or wider. I think the widest bush I've measured was 14 feet. Um, so I find that within a genotype, yield is highly correlated with plant size, but the question is, if we pack them in tighter, we, can we get a higher per plant acre or not? And it's, it's an unanswered question. The standard right now is generally six feet in row spacing, 15 feet between row spacing. And we've done, we've got these Wisconsin production trials that we've been running for almost 10 years now. And what we found is six by 15 uh, works okay in like Stoughton and the plants are, cause they're, they're so vigorous that they've more or less filled that growing space. Now there's concern going forward, you know, after a decade that they're too big. So what do we do now? But in like Spooner or Bayfield where the soils aren't as fertile and the season shorter, Six by 15 is probably too wide. We've got a lot of, if you want to call wasted space between plants and between rows. So packing in a little higher density should increase the per acre yields. And, and Lois is right, the internal shading is an issue. So we don't want these huge hedgerows with all the hazelnuts 20 feet tall and shading everything out. What we'd like to see is almost like a high density apple system where you've got small or more compact plants packed in tightly uh, and you've got uh, this rolling solar curtain, if you will, lots of surface area where the sun is shining on fruiting wood to produce lots of hazelnuts. 
And we're actually seeing the almond industry shift from big open grown trees down to these dwarfing trees that are managed smaller and then they're straddle harvested. So this is definitely a trend that's happening across all fruit crops, but now in, starting in, in nut crops too. Small plants, but lots of them per acre. So how much, um, or how many acres, I know uh, Jason, you mentioned you have a smaller half acre patch. How much many acres or trees, and you're now we're talking more actually what you're going to is more of a shrub to make it easier for harvesting, mechanical harvest, things like that. How much area would a person need or how many acres should they plant? Because there's obviously some money in hazelnuts if a person's looking to grow them and, and it looks like it's a booming potential alternative uh, crop that people can get into. How many acres would they need of hazelnuts and how much could they potentially expect to make? I know there's a, I know that's a lot of questions, but. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, in extension, the answer is it depends, right? <laughs> That wasn't so, the answer we were looking for. Yeah, yeah. So we have a publication out called uh, Can I Make Money Growing Hazelnuts that's on our website, midwesthazelnuts.org, that tries to answer these questions and lays out a model by which a grower can kind of input their own numbers and figure it out. The problem is that um, the how many acres you need depends on the equipment that you have to have. So if you're totally on your own and you've got to pay for a $50,000 harvester, you know, you're going to need a lot more acres than if you are a grower in a network that is sharing a harvester and you might be able to do, you know, one acre or five acres versus somebody totally on their own might need 15 or 20. Um, it also depends how you're selling. You know, if you're selling direct from the farm and you capture the full retail margin, uh, you're going to have an easier time cash flowing the operation than if you're selling a dollar a pound in shell nuts and that's all you've got, right? But anyway, so we, we anticipate based on the, the projections and things from our, to try to answer your question more specifically, is, is you know, we should see 2,000 to 2,500 pounds of in-shell nuts. If you're just selling in-shell nuts at a dollar, a dollar fifty a pound, you know, it gives you one sense of the revenue. Um, if you crack them out, you're looking at, you know, a third to maybe point or 40% kernel. Uh, and if you could retail them at $10 a pound, you know, again, it's going to depend on your production costs. Um, then you could be looking at, you know, let's say you're at $2,500, $3,000 net per acre is kind of where we're at, which is not that far from the Oregon model, um, actually in their, their numbers. So it's definitely got more income potential than uh, standard commodity crops. But the risks, of course, is you're not going to see positive cash flow until year four or five. You're not going to see break even until year nine, most likely, if all goes well. Not unlike apples or blueberries or any of our other perennial fruit crops. Um, but then you've got a crop that's going to last 30 years and pretty low inputs once things are established and, ma and mature. It's basically some weed control, probably some pest management and harvest. Hopefully we can develop the genetics so that pruning is the need for pruning or at least hand labor is minimized. That's our goal. So anything that's done is done mechanically, but we'll see. Yeah, that's what's really nice about um, this, this alternative crop is that we could, you'll, it'll be there and sustainable for years and years to come down the road, which is really nice once you figure out getting established and it does take a few years. But after that, yeah, there really won't necessarily be a lot of um, extra labor involved. But as you and Lois were both discussing, working with the different varieties of the flavors and tastes and trying to get, um, you know, not as you know, much shell, things like that. So as you come out with new varieties and say, I'm going to start growing hazelnuts and I plant all one variety, um, 10 years from now, I'm finally getting a decent crop of hazelnuts, but that's not the variety the buyers want. So now what do I do? Or do you not see that happening? It's the dilemma that every perennial fruit grower faces, right? They put in 10 acres of honey crisp and all of a sudden the market's flooded or when they come into production. Yeah. So it's, there's no easy answer to that. I think um, initially we don't want to see growers growing one of or two of these varieties. We're trying to get them to grow all 10 of them both for some genetic diversity, but also playing the risk game of maybe some of these varieties don't pan out for whatever reason. Well, at least I've got nine others, right? Mm -hmm. 
And also uh, there's the pollination issue. Yeah. They are not self-compatible. So you have to have at least two different varieties in order for pollination to work. So um, as we wrap up, uh, Lois and Jason, um, what would be your one piece of advice for farmers or landowners looking to go into uh, hazelnuts, knowing that they're in it for the long haul, um, but upfront, uh, what should they uh, consider to kind of minimize that risk or, or think about as they get into this uh, new crop? Get involved. That to me is number one, is start learning, start meeting other hazelnut growers, start meeting the researchers, um, and start to do your homework, right? And I would encourage, you know, you know folks that are sell, selling plants right now would want me to give a higher number and others would say, no, that's too risky. But generally what I say is get some experience with the seedlings, buy a hundred plants, learn what it's gonna take to do the site preparation, the planting, the weeding uh, for the establishment phase so that when it is time, when there are bigger volumes of the improved material available, you know what to do. You know how to plant them and you know if it's the right thing for you, you know? So definitely at this stage, and that's why, you know, sometimes I get criticized that, well, why are you talking about hazelnuts so much right now when you don't even have plant material available to growers? And my answer is, well, we got to get growers ready. We need them to do their homework. We need them to, because this is a long-term investment. There's a lot of risks for new crops. And so we want educated growers. And if that means we have a thousand people come in the door and only two, you know, 200 or 20 decide it's right for them, good. Then we're likely going to have a more sustainable industry than, you know, what happened with hemp. I get calls from, I got calls from dentists and others who had no clue. They've never grown anything. And all of a sudden they're planting 50 acres of hemp because they could right? We don't want to see that happen with hazelnuts. So that's why we're getting out ahead of this and trying to make sure we do a lot of uh, groundwork and laying a foundation. So when the improved material is available, we're ready and we'll do it right. Well, it sounds like a really great alternative crop to look at getting into. And um, we really appreciate learning a lot of different aspects about the hazelnuts today, especially from two people who really you both are really working um, and really doing a lot of groundwork for hazelnut production. And um, I would also say checking out the, uh, the website that uh, Jason had mentioned earlier with the UMHDI, the Upper Midwest Hazelnut Development Initiative. That looks like a website that a person looking that wants to browse and maybe not talk to somebody right away could look at that website as well. All right, thank you. Lois and Jason for joining us on the cutting edge today. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the cutting edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin brought to you by the university of Wisconsin, Madison division of extension.